You're listening to the Christian Humanist Radio Network, christianhumanist.org. Hey, Christian Humanist Profiles listeners, this is Nathan Gilmore. The recording you're about to hear is an interview with Michael Berger on his book, uh, Reading History from Toronto University Press. Uh, it went for about 48 minutes, and then gremlins attacked our session, and we were cut off suddenly, and Zoom started to download and compile the audio files before I could try to restore the meeting. What we had already recorded was strong enough that I didn't want to go back and re-record it because I was afraid that it wouldn't be as good as the original. So what you're going to get is an interview that ends extraordinarily abruptly. I do apologize that, but that is the editorial decision that I've made. I want to give a special thanks to Britt Stack for uh, putting this jigsaw puzzle together. Uh, The work that she does for every episode of Christian Humanist Profiles we appreciate immensely, and episodes like this one especially. So, thank you for downloading. Sit back, relax, and listen to a conversation about reading history by Michael Berger. Some truths seem to be self-evident once somebody has spoken them, but someone needs to make that move. So here it goes. Whenever any of us teaches, that teacher teaches something. Teaching a mechanic how to maintain an automobile's engine involves things that teaching differential calculus doesn't, and neither of those is quite the same as teaching Shotokan Karate. Michael Berger's new book, Reading History from University of Toronto Press, sets out to explore what it might look like to teach history in a certain way, and Christian Humanist Profiles is happy to welcome him to the show to talk, to talk about that book and to talk about the enterprise of teaching history. Thank you for joining us, Michael. Well, thank you for having me. I'm looking forward to this. I usually don't start with the story behind a book. I like to dig right into the content, but this little volume is unusual, so I'm curious is reading history something that grew out of a general education college course, an initiatory course for history majors, a request from University of Toronto Press, something else? And while you're in the neighborhood, is this a book you imagine as a textbook for one of these kinds of classes, or do you imagine a different kind of reading audience? Well, um, it you, you, you guessed it. Uh, it came from uh, a request from the press. Um, I have a couple of other uh, books published with the University of Toronto Press, and, my, and the, the both for, um, uh, for teaching. Uh, and my editor suggested this one, and, and I kind of laughed it off. Uh, and then she suggested it again, and she's very persistent. And ultimately, I thought, well, it could be an interesting thing to do. Um, it might even be useful, and I actually do have some things to say, so I'll, I, okay. Um, so that that was the genesis of the book. Now, in terms of what classes I'm thinking of it being for, and I will say I did write it for classes primarily. I think an interested person could read it and enjoy it, I, I hope, uh, but it was primarily for classes. Um, first and foremost, most history programs have a course for majors about the discipline itself um, and how it works. Um, and um, uh, this sometimes it's called a methods class. Uh, where I teach, it's called History Workshop, but but most, most places have such a course. Um, and I think that's the most natural place uh, for students to be asked to read this. Um, it might also be useful, actually, for the introductory history survey courses. Um, depending on 
what kind of reading load the, the students at the particular university we're talking about uh, can manage, um, it might be useful as, as a kind of a supplement. And I would use it only as a supplement uh, for one of those uh, core university history required classes. Very good, very good. I'm gonna gear most of our conversation today to, towards teaching history since this book seems okay. to be a teaching text. So I'll start here. Uh, your opening chapter begins with questions of sources and evidence. So the college, the college students you teach, do they usually have a good grasp of what counts as evidence and what doesn't when historians practice their craft? Or is this a language that students in history classes in our moment have to unlearn before they can learn it properly? Um, I would say students often come in, in fact, I might even say generally come in uh, to my classes uh, without really a good sense of, of what constitutes evidence. Uh, and indeed, um, that there has to be some unlearning. Um, if you look at our discourse, and I'm talking about the United States in the past 10 years, let's say, or even five, um, one will often hear it asserted, um, and I've read this both on the left and the right, uh, talking about their opponents, that something is being said without evidence, or somebody doesn't have any evidence for what they're saying. Um, and evidence there is often being used as a synonym for proof, right? Meaning they haven't proven what they've said. Um, whereas most questions in life, at least a lot of questions in life, there may not be absolutely conclusive proof, but there may be more and better evidence or less and worse evidence. Um, and that sense that evidence can be strong or weak or of moderate strength, um, or there can be more of it or less of it seems to be getting lost. And I see that with my students often coming into the course, into the university. Um, and so one of the things I hope to undo uh, in this book and just in teaching generally um, is this sense that um, either something is proven or it's unproven. That's true. Um, but most questions in life, things may be not conclusively absolutely proven in the sense that two plus two equals four is proven. Um, and so getting a sense that there's more and weak, more evidence and less evidence, weaker and stronger evidence is something students need to learn. Um, history is a good venue for doing that, I think, uh, because the evidence we use is, is almost always imperfect, uh, to say the least. Um, the other problem is that students come in without tending to think that, well, evidence means somebody said so or somebody important said so. Um, the textbooks, the, the French Revolution was an attempt to impose enlightenment values on French society. Um, uh, we know that because the textbook said so. Uh, that's my evidence. <laughs> well, that's actually, I guess that's evidence, but it's not very good. Uh, it's purely based on authority. Um, and so undoing that is, I think, should be one of the goals. Uh, for instructors in the university. Um, and again, history lends itself to that, I think. Very good, very good. I, uh, you know, what I'm hearing some of here is a distinction between necessary and probabilistic claims mm. that, you know, there's a greater probability, but not a, uh, a necessary certainty. And then the other one, and I, and I think that's an interesting direction, uh, is interacting with sources rather than taking them as the end of a conversation 
Would that, would that be a good way to put the way uh, put your point there? So in other words, I mean, you know, I, I know that my students, when I teach, you know, they say, uh, well, I have uh, found a scholarly source because that's the adverb that, you know, libraries like to use. And therefore the conversation is over. And, you know, my tendency is to say, well, no, that's where the conversation begins. And, you know, your job now is to say why or why not that scholarly source uh, is, you know, doing the work that needs to be done here. Yes. Um, the, the question then becomes, okay, can you assess how well that's it, how well its scholarly source has in fact gotten the conclusions it's gotten, right? Uh, right. That scholarly source presumably, and, and I take students through examples of this with, with a couple sort of sample monographs, um, deploys evidence and argument from that evidence to get to those conclusions. Um, and while often there is specialist knowledge that would really help in trying to assess how well those conclusions are drawn, um, students still nonetheless are in a position to uh, decide to assent or not, uh, simply looking at how well the evidence is used purely on internal grounds in a sense, uh, without bringing in specialized knowledge of the period or place. Very good, very good. And I appreciate that this book spends most of its pages, uh, and actually I didn't do the algebra here, so I'm just gonna say most of the pages without counting, uh, dealing with what I'd call primary sources and asking what I would call questions of interpretation and rhetorical situation. So who is the intended audience? Who is the author? How broad is the readership? How representative or marginal is the writer? So once again, I wanna to go to the, the art of teaching this. When you teach students to work with primary texts, how much or how little repetition does it take before your students start asking these questions of rhetorical situation on their own? Um, fair amount <laughs> of repetition. This is not, I have found, a natural way to read. Um, uh, I fear sometimes that I've been reading this way for so long because I've been a professional historian for a long time and I was a history major before that, uh, that it has become it's just how I read automatically, um, but it's not how students do. Uh, it's not how I think people generally do. It's something that has to become habitual, which means basically you have to do it again and again uh, to do it naturally and, and to get good at it. Yeah, very um, Aristotelian answer. I like that. <laughs> keep rolling, keep rolling. Sorry. All right. So, yeah. So, I mean, maybe you may have, in fact, noticed there was a, a point in the book where I talked about um, Aristotle's uh, idea of intellectual virtues. Um, and, and I'm going to warp, twist Aristotle a little, bend him a little bit here, but, um, but Aristotle basically argues that virtues um, uh, in general are habits, uh, that one becomes a virtuous purchase person by simply doing something virtuous repeatedly. Um, and he identifies intellectual virtues among the virtues, things like, um, uh, say, intellectual caution or um, uh, a willingness to be honest about what the evidence sustains and so on and so forth, or, or, uh, or in my case, reading slowly and carefully. Um, and so these are virtues, but if there are Aristotelian virtues, then yes, they are habits, um, or, or they'll be exercised reliably only if they become habits. Um, and how do you get a habit? You do something again and again until it becomes, in a sense, second nature. 
Um, so in that sense, I would argue reading history can make you virtuous. Um, although I will say in that restricted sense of intellectual virtues, I don't think it makes you a more moral person more generally. Uh, you still may be a serial killer, but at least you'd be, you could be a serial killer who um, uses evidence well. <laughs> right, um, right, 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 right. Yeah, and, and you know, and, and, you know I, I don't want to belabor that dispute too long, but I mean, you know, I think that it's also at least instructive that uh, we consider it a pity to a greater extent when someone who is educated in such things turns out to be a moral wretch. Uh, so, right. I mean, you know, at the very least, uh, we have a sense that we should judge more harshly uh, people who should know better. Uh -huh. But that's a that's another conversation. We can have that someday. But <laughs> so, we, that's a, 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 that, that gets us into uh, moves us from Aristotle, I think, conceivably to Augustine. And, and yes, uh, yes, yes, I agree. I agree. Yeah. <laughs> All right. I do want to get back to your book, though, because there's a, there's still a lot to talk about here. Mm -hmm. um, I want to step take a step back from teaching for a moment and note a term that I hadn't really learned, you know, in my own historical education. I'm an English professor, but I took some history. Mm -hmm. uh, and that term is cognate sources. So for our listeners who aren't historians or uh, like me, apparently didn't pay attention in history class, <laughs> what are cognate sources and what makes them important? All right. Well, um, first of all, you're not necessarily missing, you didn't necessarily sleep through class. I find that um, historians often don't use this term when teaching, uh, but it's something, it's a term I suspect most of us know, or at least we, we sort of immediately grasp when we hear it. Um, uh, a cognate source is a, another source that, or I should say cognate sources are two different sources that deal with the same thing, uh, usually coming at it from a different angle. Um, so, for example, uh, let's say uh, you're uh, doing a bit of, um, of uh, research on, let's say, uh, taxation. Um, well, you may have a source that basically lists the tax assessments for a, a neighborhood, let's say, right? Well, that's a source for, for taxes. Uh, but you may also have a source, uh, say a lawsuit, uh, where somebody sued the government or the government sued somebody over taxes, right? Um, those are two different sources. They intersect around that issue of taxation, right? Um, so those would be two different cognate sources. Um, now, obviously this term can be broadened in a sense. I mean, what if the two things that the two sources intersect in is say the issue of the fall of the Roman empire? Um, most historians would not say, well, those, well, anything having to do with the fall of the Roman empire is therefore a cognate source with anything else having to do with the fall of the Roman empire because that's such a huge thing. Um, so this term cognate source is a bit fuzzy. Um, it, it, it really applies uh, to fairly small issues and different sources that intersect uh, regarding that small issue. So to go to a place somewhere between uh, property taxes and the fall of the Roman Empire, I mean, something like uh, Plato's version of Socrates and Xenophon's version of Socrates, would that still be cognate source or would we be into different territory at that point? I would say yes, if, if your quarry is Socrates, right? 
Um, yeah, uh, in that case, sure. I mean, you now, you know, uh, uh, Plato's Republic can be used as a source for other things, right? It has been. Uh, but if you're Corey Socrates, then yes, I would say Xenophon and, and Plato would both would, would be considered cognate sources. Very good. Very good. Well, another term and another practice that your book recommends in, and that I commend as well is reading against the grain of a historical document. So uh, I know what that tends to mean in theological circles uh, when it comes to biblical texts. For, historic, for historians, pardon me, what does it mean to read against the grain of a historical document and what do students gain when they learn to do that? Okay. Uh, well, um, I'm going to preface this by saying um, that my impression, I, well, one, I have no idea what theologians mean by it. <laughs> okay, that's all right. That's all right. Um, what and, do historians uh, mean by it? <laughs> uh, I didn't actually know theologians used the term, although thinking about it, I guess yeah. I shouldn't be surprised. Yeah, um, but, but, but it has a, a different connotation, so it's interesting. Yeah. My impression is that the term comes out of, of literary studies, perhaps more generally, maybe that's how it filtered into the Bible, a uh, study of that. Um, and my impression, and I'm going to be careful here because um, uh, I'm wandering into a field that's not mine, right, which is literature. Um, but my impression in literature is that reading against the grain means to focus on what the text does not say or does not talk about. Right? Um, and uh, uh, historians, when they use the term reading against the grain, means something rather different, I think. And so that's worth pointing out uh, for your listeners, if any of them are from uh, English or know the term from English, uh, I'm not talking about that. Um, uh, what, this is, what historians do is something a little related. So um, what we're looking, reading against, against the grain means to look for details that the writer did not intend to communicate um, but which nonetheless reveals something about the writer's world. Um, and so uh, uh, here you get around the problem, in theory at least, of a writer attempting be, to be deceptive or a writer having an ax to grind, because you're not looking for what the writer is trying to say. Um, you're looking for something that the writer sort of unconsciously reveals right in the course of writing. So for example, um, let's say a thousand years from now, we have historians reading Superman comics, or oh no, better yet, I'll take uh, uh, Batman comics, right? Uh, reading Batman. Um, and uh, they discover that there's a, a figure called Commissioner Gordon, right, who seems to be in charge of the police, right, and his title is Commissioner. Well, that's not something any author of a Batman comic book was trying to communicate to an audience, right? Um, right, this was knowledge that was expected, right, and, and Commissioner Gordon's title is mentioned in passing, um, but to an historian a thousand years from now, it suggests, okay, there seems to be a police force and this police force seems to be headed by a person who has this title commissioner, right? Uh, that would be an example of reading against the grain as an historian uh, might do it. Um, this is rather different from saying, reading Jane Austen um, and saying, oh, Jane Austen studiously um, uh, does not say anything about industrialization. Uh, therefore, she is trying to 
mask industrialization or 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 deny its existence or something of that sort, right? Uh, which is which is my impression is more what uh, literary scholars uh, tend to do when they read against the grain. Very good, very good. Yeah, the uh, it's interesting because the uh, the theologian's version of reading against the grain, I mean, is neither of those two. It's a third thing entirely, right. and it is you know. <laughs> Uh, taking the the kind of uh, traditional interpretation, I mean, just for an easy example, uh, they take the uh, the master or the king figure in one of the parables of Jesus and renders it as Caesar rather than as God, and uh -huh. you know makes the uh, the master figure who returns from his trip and then punishes the unfaithful servants as the bad guy of the story rather than the righteous judge. So it's interesting that you know that uh, that that phrase from you know woodworking, I would assume. <laughs> <laughs> has uh -huh. taken on, you know, three very different uh, meanings in literary criticism and in history and in theology. So, like I said, I, I, I picked that up and I thought it was fascinating. So I figured uh -huh. we'd talk about it a little bit. Um, I'm going to take an utterly self-indulgent tour, just for, detour, pardon me, just for a moment here. Uh, I noticed somewhere around chapter five that you use BC and AD as well as BCE and CE to signify dates in this book. And I know my own reasons for occasionally slipping in an AD rather than a CE, but I want to hear your reasons and your thoughts on using both. Okay, sure. Well, actually, I think I didn't quite use both. That is, my suspicion is, is that the CE uh, or BCE that you saw was actually the text that I was quoting and discussing. Ah, that very well might be. Thank you for that news. clarification. Yeah. Um, so, so I'm I'm simply a BC and CE person. Uh, I'm sorry, a BC and AD person. Um, and the okay, reason good, for that, you just I, confused I, I, me I terribly. Go ahead. <laughs> no, that's okay. Um, um, and I'm not. I, I will say I'm not doctrinaire on one or the other. Um, you know, lots of people, most people, I would say, write really great history using CE and 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 BCE. Um, and it doesn't affect their argument one whit. And so, you know, I don't really care that strongly about it. Uh, but I do, in the end, prefer to use BC and AD. Um, uh, for your listeners um, uh, who might be wondering, uh, this is not out of any kind of confessional allegiance. Um, I am not, nor have I ever been a Christian, even a nominal one. Uh, so that's not the reason. Um, the reason instead is simply that I don't really see a compelling reason to draw a veil over the origins of what has become a universal dating system. Um, and in fact, to the extent we do that using CE and BCE, which as I said, in the end, I think are perfectly acceptable. Um, to the extent we do that, we're kind of rubbing away a little, a little bit of historical understanding right, um, about where something came from. Um, I think nowadays it is perfectly possible, as I do, to use uh, BC and AD without assenting in any way uh, to uh, uh, claims about the divinity of Christ or, or anything of that sort. Um, uh, but, uh, but I, and so in that, that's why I'm not doctrinaire about, about the issue in part. Um, but I do think that, as I said, it 
I don't really see a strong reason to to kind of cloak right where where this dating system came from. Yeah, um, and honestly, so that's, that's the reason it. I tend to prefer AD is because it seems like a bit of sleight of hand to call it common era. I, I always right. I always want to ask common to whom, <laughs> you know, that, like there's actually you know uh, Chinese dating systems, there's Islamic dating systems. Uh, we're not using those. We're using the one that dates back to the Gregorian notion right. of the birth of Christ. So. Well, <laughs> well, I guess the argument for CE in that sense would be to say, well, it is the common era now, right? That is, it's common to the world. I mean, basically everybody uses this. Yeah, think, yeah. To say. But, but it kind of cloaks how it became yes, common. Muslims will, will <laughs> date things differently. Right. Um, but really, for practical purposes, right, everybody says it's the year 2022. Fair enough. Uh, Fair enough. And so, uh, and so, in that sense, yeah, I can see the argument to say, yeah, it's, it's well, it is the common use, uh, and therefore common to pretty much the world. Um, but uh, as I said, I, I, you know, things can can and often do uh, transcend their origins, right? Um, sure. Sure. Now, I suppose you could use that as an argument to say, well, therefore, we should use CE, right? Uh, but I'm in the business of revealing origins, uh, <laughs> right, <laughs> right, right. Rather than trying to paper them over. Mm -hmm. um, very good, very good. Well, one moment that I definitely resonated with as a teacher of old books uh, is when you distinguish between reading treatises as advocating novel ideas and reading treatises as reflecting commonplace ideas. And I shudder to think of how many of my students over the years have come to write on their final exams that everyone in 16th century England, for instance, basically agrees with Thomas More's Raphael Hithliday <laughs> and his love for the utopians. Uh, but you should talk here. What makes this kind of distinction difficult for students? Um, I think often part of it is a lack of knowledge of context um, because really, to understand whether a, a text is simply reflecting common ideas of its time or is in fact propagating something radical, uh, to know that in the end really requires or, cl or close to requires um, a knowledge of what are the conventional ideas and thinking of the time, right? Uh, well, students are students, they're learning about the past um, and so they don't come in knowing those things. Um, and so what I tend to find is that students in that situation, in fact, tend, if anything, to move to a default of the text is an agent, right? Uh, the, the, the treatise or whatever it is, is in fact making people believe something that they didn't believe before. Um, and, and so it doesn't okay, reflect that's its time, yeah. right, in the sense of reflecting convention. Um, it in fact is, is, is in fact shaping how people think. Um, I will say I was kind of surprised when I first discovered student, when I first started teaching and discovered students came in with that presumption. Um, because I tend, my, my, my set point is to think the other way, right? Honestly. Um, uh, uh, but that is how students do it. Uh, that's how students tend naturally, it seems to, to, to work. Um, and sometimes, of course, they're right, um, but often they're not. And, and again, I think what it, what, what it comes to is they, they don't know the broader context. They don't know what was, what was conventional in the 16th century, right? Um, 
And so, um, and our job is to help teach them that. Um, but in the meantime, what, what we really need to do is kind of warn them off and say, look, you know, there are two possibilities here, right? Um, and we have to figure out which possibility is, is correct. Is, this, is the text simply reflecting convention or is it in fact saying something fundamentally new and possibly changing people's minds, right? Or maybe not, that's a different issue. Uh, right, it, right. No, that's novel. interesting because I very few of my students have have written about texts as having the power to change minds. Most of the time, I mean, you know, they'll write about, for instance, Plato's Republic, and they'll say, you know, uh, in ancient Greece, none of the kings ever accumulated any property. And I, I always kind of, oh no, I've, what, what have I done? That's that's absolutely not how kings behaved back then. Uh, that's oh dear. That, that, that's why Plato had such a problem with them. And wrote this book called, you know, Politeia. Uh -huh. But uh -huh. like, you know, the uh, so it's interesting. I, you know, uh, just tendencies in the ways that students, you know, approach these kinds uh -huh. of texts. Um, now, another tendency that my students have, and it's interesting because it ties into this question of context, right? Uh, hmm. But when we read literary and philosophical texts, my students tend to lean entirely too much on the front matter. Uh, in a in a you know an edited volume of Plato's Republic or the Epic of Sunjata or something like that. So, in addition to using your book, and of course our history teachers out there are going to use your book now. Uh, but what kinds of things can teachers of any kind of historical text do to get students' eyes on the primary text instead of leaning so hard on the front matter? Okay, here. Or I'm should they do to... that in the first place? <laughs> uh, no, no, you shouldn't do that. <laughs> yeah, okay, um, go ahead. <laughs> I, I'm going to engage in a piece of selfless, I'm sorry, shameless, I should say, self-promotion. Um, they should choose books if they can, that is, instructors should choose books if they can, that have introductions that don't do students' work for them. Um, and an example would be, um, I've edited, you know, I mentioned I had a couple of things at the University of Toronto Press. One of them is a, a, a source book, primary source collection for uh, Western Civ students. Um, and the introductions, one of the, the many merits of that edition uh, is that the uh, introductions are studiously uninformative, right? Um, they give students what they need to kind of basically put the, the, the source into some kind of context, uh, but they don't tell students what they can conclude. I mean, I actually created that reader in part because I was so irritated with so many Western Civ readers um, that would do things like say, this source shows blah, 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 blah. Well, you've just told the, you've just told the students what they're gonna conclude. Um, and made sure that and, most of them won't read the text. Right. <laughs> um, now, exactly, right? Why, why read the text? You've just been told what you can conclude. Um, and so now, now I will say the reason my, my collection of sources is not the only edition out there that does this or does not do that. That, that terrible thing. Um, so for example, the reason I chose or approached, I should say at least, University of Toronto Press to publish that reader was because they had a reader already uh, in medieval history edited by Patrick Geary, Readings in Medieval History, that has that same characteristic. It has some other wonderful characteristics too. Oh, very too, good, very good. I've uh, actually but it got has that reader that. on my shelf. Um, yeah. uh -huh. So certainly if you can, right, look for editions of the sources that 
don't tell students everything. Um, right. That's one uh, thing uh, that you can do, probably the best thing you can do, or the easiest thing you can do if you can do it. Um, other than that, you know, you can exhort students, right, not to just read the introduction. Um, you know, sometimes you can ask students questions that the introduction doesn't answer. Um, and, you know, and, and ahead of time, so to speak, is study questions or something like that, that might steer students toward the text itself, uh, rather than the introduction. You could even say the introduction doesn't answer these questions, right? Um, and, you know, I recommend in general, big, broad, interesting questions, obviously, uh, but that can be another move. Uh, but certainly I think that if you have an introduction that says too much, uh, you should at least talk to your students about it uh, and say, look, in the end, you know, what's needed here is answers from the text itself. I actually am actually pretty rigorous about demanding students tell me, even in something like an online discussion post or um, uh, in even class discussion, what page something is on, right? Uh, partly uh, to as a go to read the text itself, but also partly also simply so that everybody else in the class can look at page 32, right, and confirm that the text actually does say that and the conclusion seems reasonable. Um, so, so that those are some techniques you can use, um, but it's a but it's a, a real problem. Um, then there, of course, there are students who insist on not reading the introduction. There are fewer in number, um, yes. <laughs> which can raise other issues, right? Like, yes, you read Plato's Republic, but you have no idea this comes out of, say, the fourth century BC. <laughs> right, right, right. <laughs> um, you know, uh, which one does want students to know. Yes, yes. Very good. Now, you do have a, a, a section in here on uh, interpreting art historically. And one distinction that you make that I found interesting is between realism and iconography. So I think most of our listeners have some notion of what realism means, but often when we talk about realistic art, uh, it's the opposite of impressionist art. It's the opposite of abstract art. It's the opposite of some kind of stylized art movement. Uh, what makes your distinction realist versus iconographic an important one for history students to attend to? Okay. Well, I will say, um, art historians may not necessarily like the, the, the distinction put that way, because as you said, realism is often contrasted with impressionism and so on. And I think for some good reasons, right? I'm, I'm not challenging that usage. Uh, what I am saying though, is that um, some art relies heavily on iconography. Um, and by that, I mean um, the use of symbols, which typically, were generally understood at the time that the artist produced the work. Um, and so uh, I think the example I have in the book is I have a 17th century painting of Louis XIV and his family uh, by a, a painter named Noclet. Uh, and um, even if you don't know what Louis XIV's family members looked like, um, you can identify who they are if you know the, icono the iconography. So for example, uh, there's a woman standing by Louis who um, has a little crescent on her head. 
well, if you know your ancient Greek iconography, which was still something known by educated people in the 17th century, uh, you know that Sibylle is a mother goddess, <laughs> right? Uh, and that she was symbolized by a crescent, right, on the head. Uh, and so what we're being told there is that woman is, in other words, Louis XIV's mother, right, and the mother of the rest of the family that you see there. Um, and so this kind of symbolism is really uh, for most students and for most actually scholars, a kind of a lost language that has to be regained, right, in order to understand uh, a work of art from the past that relies on iconography in that way, relies on a series of sort of, at the time, commonly understood symbols. Um, right, right. So that's the, the term. Um, now, you can have an iconographic work which is otherwise quite realistic in the sense of looks like how you know people are depicted or things are depicted as looking like they look in the real world, right? Uh, and rather than say impressionistically or uh, rather uh, or or the way a cubist might depict them, for example, in the 20th century. Um, and in that sense, yes, I think you could say no craze. The family of Louis XIV is realistic in the sense that, yeah, those look like people that we could meet. They're kind of dressed differently, right? But, and they've got some of the, the crescents on their heads are, are holding weird things that are the icons, right? That are the uh, symbols, uh, but otherwise they're, they're realistic in that sense. Right. I, you know, as opposed to, for instance, the, uh, the painting that often comes to my mind is the one in the, uh, the inside of the dome in the U.S. Capitol of George Washington being assumed among Neptune and Jupiter and Mars, <laughs> and uh, you know, I'd I'd say that's a kind of an extreme of iconographic representation. Sure, and Nep <laughs> and we probably know it's Neptune because he's holding a trident, right? Yes, we do. Yes, we do. And also um, that, because that's where the iconography really comes in. Yeah. And also because Washington D.C. as a city is obsessed with the Roman Empire in its architecture, <laughs> art, and sure. so many other ways. <laughs> Um, and, and another piece that, that, that strikes me is, you know, one that is certainly, uh, representational. So it's, it's realistic in that sense, but the, uh, the either famous or infamous, depending on how you like it or not, uh, portrait of, uh, Lyndon Johnson towering over the Capitol dome. Um, you know, <laughs> I, re I remember being introduced to that one in an art class and, you know, realizing that, uh, that is a photograph that one could take. And yet, uh, the fact that he, the man, is towering over the U.S. Capitol dome. Uh, I mean, that's that's some iconography right there. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Um, now, another one. Uh, well, actually, I, I want to. Yeah, I do want to go to another term. Uh, mm -hmm. Another practice to which your book points, you call the worst enemy test. So what kind of enemies are we talking about? And why should they enter into our evaluations of history monographs, textbooks, journal articles, things like that. Okay. So, um, so this is, as you sort of uh, suggested, uh, something I bring up in the discussion of secondary sources where historians are trying to make arguments and draw conclusions. Um, and I guess another way of talking about the worst enemy uh, is to say devil's advocate. Right. Um, that is, um, if you really wanted to try to undo this historian's conclusions, um, how would you do it? What, where are the weak points in the logic? Um, what evidence 
that is pertinent is missing, if, if there is any, um, and so on. How could you undo uh, the conclusions that the historians have has reached? Very often by saying, well, okay, there are alternative conclusions that contradict the first um, that account for the evidence just as well, right? Can you do that? Now, the point of doing that, of course, is not to be um, right. I mean, it, it can feel like you're being one when you're doing that. Right. Uh, and it may be that are especially good at this. I don't know. Um, but the point here is not to just be a jerk. Uh, the point here is that by, by giving, uh, an argument, that kind of acid test, um, you are figuring out how strong it really is. And so whether or not you should, uh, assent to it, uh, agree with it, uh, or not, right? That really is the goal here, um, not just to be a fierce critic for the sake yeah, of- Yeah, I mean, it, it, it reminds me of uh, the uh, the writing scholars, uh, Peter Elbow's you know, notion of a believing and doubting game where you read a source twice, the first one, finding reasons to believe it, and then the second time, finding reasons to doubt it. And, you know, like I said, I, I like the uh, worst enemy test because, I mean, it it, uh, it makes it a little bit more visceral than that. It's not a game. Uh -huh. It's a, uh, you know, it is taking on the role of an enemy. Um, now, one thing that, that occurs in historiography, historia wow, adjective form, historiographical text, there we go, uh, is something that you call responding to the historiography. Uh, and this is another term that I hadn't encountered before. Uh, but you explain it rather well, so I'd like you to talk about it to our listeners a little bit. Um, what does it mean to respond to the historiography, and at what levels in an undergraduate or a graduate, for that matter, education, do you expect history students to engage in responding to the historiography? Okay, um, so well, first of all, let me take this term historiography. Um, so historiography really has two senses to it, as historians tend to use the word. Um, on the one hand, the broadest sense is the history of history writing, how history has, uh, the, the, the practice of history has changed over time. Um, and you can, you know, a lot of these discussions go back to starting with, say, Herodotus uh, in the fifth century BC, right, running through current practice. Um, so that's historiography in the grand sense. Um, but then historians will talk about the historiography of a particular subject. So, for example, I don't know, um, Magna Carta. Uh, how have historians uh, discussed Magna Carta in the past? How has that, how have those discussions changed over time? Right. And that second sense is the sense that's really pertinent to what I'm talking about in the book. Um, when historians write, uh, typically, at least when they, especially when they write either a monograph, that is a, a book that's specialized uh, on a fairly tight focus, focused uh, subject with an argument that's supposed to be new, uh, or when they write, say, articles for learned journals, um, they are typically responding to what earlier historians have said. Um, they might do it by trying to argue those earlier historians are wrong. They might try to do it by arguing those earlier historians are right, and here's more evidence and more argument for those historians. Uh, they might do both. Uh, they might argue that, well, historians have really focused on one thing, but really they should be focusing on something else, right? Um, uh, there's some new question that hasn't been raised 
Um, but nonetheless, they are often doing raising that new question in the context of older questions that historians have dealt with. Um, so really, when historians write, they are taking part in a conversation, right? They are really addressing, in a sense, those earlier historians and what they've said and adding something or trying to add something new, right, to carry that conversation forward. And of course, conversations change over time. They change focus in all kinds of ways, as you know, just having a long conversation uh, in your own life. So um, that means that when a student reads a monograph or reads a journal article or something like that, um, it really helps to know what the historiography, that is what the conversation has been up until that point. Now, historians will, in fact, often try to help readers out by actually kind of summarizing that conversation a bit, <laughs> right, before they get into their own conclusions. Um, and um, that is a very helpful thing, um, and it, it helps uh, the reader situate that historian in the conversation uh, before you actually get to what that, owns histori that, that, that historian's own conclusions and evidence are. Now, uh, I will say students need to be, I think, often informed that that's how things are working because I've had students read, for example, a monograph which has a first chapter, which is basically historiography that talks about what all these other historians have said about a topic. Um, and, those, and those students have come out and said, I don't want to know what other historians have to say. This person needs to talk about what he or she has to say. Well, <laughs> he or she's going to right. do that, right? But this is why that historiographical discussion is there. Um, now, the question then becomes, okay, when do you or how do you talk to students about this who are just learning? Um, and what it comes down to is that I think you have to be selective in your historiographical discussion, depending on the level of the student. Um, so if I'm teaching freshmen, say, and I'm teaching the first semester of Western Civ, well, there's all kinds of historiography I could bring into the historians have been talking about all the to topics I've talked about for, you know, 100 years or more. Uh, and, and, you know, if I talked about all the historiography that pertains, right, and I haven't read all the historiography that pertains, right, because I'm only human, um, uh, well, the class would be a 30-year class, right? Um, so we have a semester. So the thing to do in that situation is to be selective and pick maybe one or two historiographic, one or two issues to deal with historiographically, and even then to do it in a fairly introductory way. So the issue I pick, one of them in particular, is the fall of Rome. Um, and I start out talking about Edward Gibbon uh, and his decline and fall of the Roman Empire. And I give them, I, I confess, and I warn students this is the case, a somewhat cartoonish version of Ed, of Gibbon's view on Christianity and the barbarians. It is so easy to do with Rome. Gibbon though. Right, I'm sorry? <laughs> that is so easy to do with Gibbon. And it is easy to do with Gibbon and it's unfortunate. I don't warn, warn them that Gibbon really is better than, than what I'm, I'm giving them. Right, right. Go and read him, uh, maybe an abridged version, but nonetheless. Um, I don't know if I've ever had a student come back and said I did that, but, but I always hope. Uh, at any rate, um, 
so I trot them through the, my cartoon Gibbon. Um, and then I talk about responses to Gibbon. And in particular, I stress what is sometimes called the late antiquity school, right? That argues that rather than Christianity and uh, the Germans displacing Rome and thus ending it, uh, that there's a large scale fusion, right? Between Christianity and, and the barbarians on the one hand and Roman culture on the other. Um, and, so, and, and so a lot of that section of the course is really structured around those two, ar that argument and counter argument. Right, so that's a very elementary introduction to the historiography. Um, um, I will say I think it works pretty well, uh, which is nice. Um, and but that's the level that's appropriate for freshmen, right? Um, in the the what what's called the history workshop where I teach uh, the kind of methods class for majors, especially sort of majors just starting, um, one of the things I have them do is actually read uh, three or four uh, monographs or parts of monographs on American slavery um, that are clearly responding in some ways to each other, right? So you start out with uh, an historian named Ulrich B. Phillips, who uh, wrote in 1918, uh, who today would be regarded as a rank racist, then I think would be would have been regarded as a properly thinking racist, uh, who thought slavery was good for black people um, and they needed it. Um, and it was basically benign. Um, and then students move on to Kenneth Stamp writing in the 1950s, who basically flips Phillips on his head uh, and says, no, it was an oppressive uh, uh, institution that uh, was bad for black people and so on. Um, and so that is a, a fairly easily grasped historiography and students rather read a couple other historians in stamp. Um, and so that's, I think, uh, a much more extensive introduction, uh, but still one that's fairly reader friendly for students who, um, you know, usually have a better background in US history than anything else. Um, and so know something about the subject matter even before they come in. Very good, very good. It, it reminds me of a uh, an assignment that I do in my upper division Shakespeare course where I, I call it the bibliography chain assignment where they have to find an article on a play of their choice from the last five years and then find one of the articles that it's responding to, request that article from the library, read it, and then find an article that, or find, yeah, find a source that that article is responding to, and then write me an essay about, okay, you know, what are the passages, what are the ideas, what are the things that all three of them are treating, and what are the reasons that they approach them differently. So it sounds like a, a parallel kind of deal. Yeah, I really like that assignment, actually. <laughs> very good, may, very good. May adapt it and steal it, we'll see. Very good. Well, I, I stole it from a, a fellow podcaster and a friend named Danny Anderson, so I should, yeah. I should give credit for that. He invented uh -huh. that assignment. <laughs> well, well, I will say teaching, I hope my students aren't listening to this, teaching in a sense is licensed plagiarism. I try to give credit. I try to give credit. Um, now, one question that I have uh, about the rhetorical use of this, and this might not be something that's that's as prevalent in historical in history historiography in that sense as, as it is in other places, but I know that in scholarly monographs and in learned journal articles, uh, people are pretty careful to talk, to talk about scholarship as a conversation where people are disagreeing with. Mm -hmm. Too often in theological circles, and this just might be a vice 
uh, of Christians. I'm open to that possibility. Uh, Sometimes people will talk about, you know, the scholarship as if it ends a conversation rather than begins it. You know, the scholarship says that Paul didn't write that. The scholarship says that this is dated late rather than early. Uh, Is is that something that uh, uh, happens among historians or is that something that is particular to, you know, something like theology that, you know, has a sort of dual life in the academy and beyond? Um, I would say that historians can sometimes do something like that. Okay. Um, okay. Now we used to, where you might have a discussion that says, well, historians used to think X, but now we think Y. Yes. That's the kind of thing I'm talking <laughs> right. about. Yes. And, yes. And, and, <laughs> you know, but the thing is the, 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 the problem and, and, but, Typically, this will not be about the issue that is central to what the historian is dealing with it with, because what historians always want to do is continue that conversation, right? I mean, we get rewarded for saying something new, right? Now, the something right. new may be further evidence that everybody's right, right? Which is usually considered less exciting, but worthy. Um, uh, or it could be, oh no, everybody's wrong. Right. Right. Um, but, but that's kind of how we get our, our scholarly points, um, is by, by, um, uh, furthering the conversation, especially with something that's novel. Um, and I do fear that sometimes that reward system can in fact encourage people perhaps to push for novelty where it really isn't justified, <laughs> right? Because right. You, know, you, you don't get credit for just saying everybody's right and 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 I have no more evidence to add. Um, that's not a uh, uh, something that uh, will, will get you renowned. Very good. Well, we talked about Aristotle earlier. I want to turn towards Epictetus. Uh, on one page, you counsel your readers to build intellectual virtues like diligent investigation, not through willpower, but through habit. That sounds like Aristotle. And then on the next, you call on your readers to resist passion when they do history. That's page 115. Uh, counsel that, you know, might make a marble statue of Marcus Aurelius smile. So if ethics is, among other things, imagining and aspiring towards a good life, what does the life of a good historian look like? We've talked a little bit about intellectual virtue. Is there moral virtue to be had here, or is that uh, something that doesn't emerge from history? Ooh, there's a lot there. Oh, I know. I like to um, save the impossible questions for the end. <laughs> um, all right. Well, let me start by observing that when I'm talking about intellectual virtues uh, that the historian should cultivate, right? Like um, uh, being careful to consider evidence that might run against the conclusion one is interested in concluding, right? Or uh, reading a source more than once and having discipline to do that and so on and so forth. Um, when I'm doing that, I'm actually not doing history. I'm doing philosophy, if you like, or philosophy of history. Yeah, good distinction. Right? Good. Um, and so, um, uh, you know, it may be that the moral thing to do would be to exercise intellectual virtues, but the exercise of those, but, but, but actually exercising those intellectual virtues 
um, to get sound conclusions in history, um, those conclusions are not themselves moral, particularly, right? Um, now, the question then is, <laughs> all right, um, is it indeed moral to cultivate intellectual virtues? Um, I don't know. 